Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Well, you're in for a super treat with this episode because we're chatting with my good friend, Arthur Woods. I met Arthur years ago at a youth leadership seminar. Shout out to Hobie. What? H-O-B-Y, Hugh O'Brien Youth Leadership, and we've stayed in touch over these years. And Arthur is truly an expert when it comes to finding purpose in your work. In this episode, he shared some really fantastic sets of perspectives and a framework and a litany of pro tips for finding more purpose in your work. So some of my favorite takeaways from this one were the three essential places where purpose is found at work, how to find that greener grass right where you are in your current workplace, and how to access a free pretty sophisticated, robust assessment tool for diagnosing your personal purpose drivers. And Arthur has a great take on on this stuff when it comes to purpose because he is the co-founder of Imperative, a company reshaping the way we hire and support a purpose-driven workplace. He is writer, speaker, and advisor to leading brands on the future of work. Arthur previously led operations for YouTube's education division and oversaw YouTube for schools. Arthur co-founded the Compass Fellowship, the largest collegiate social enterprise training program, and Out in Tech the leading global LGBTQ technology community. He is a World Economic Forum Global Shaper, a New York Venture Fellow, and sits on the boards of the Georgetown Technology Alliance, Compass Partners, and Out in Tech. To check out some of these resources, you can visit www.awesomeatyourjob.com slash F6, or you can skip the W's and just go directly to awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP, and then the number six. So here's Arthur. All right, Arthur, thanks so much for being here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thanks for having me, Pete. Well, that bio sounds like you're keeping pretty busy, and I know we're chatting about how you're you're jet-setting and traveling all over, but tell us, uh, what's something that you're doing for fun or keeping you busy off the bio or outside of work? Well, when uh, not working, which is which is pretty much most of my day, I try to get out to the ski slopes. I'm a, I, I'm a, I grew up in a place where you had a larger ski team than football team, so... That is still sort of where my heart is, is on the ski slopes. <laughs> oh, that sounds fun. You know, fun fact, I am actually currently in Bozeman, Montana, as we're speaking, and lots of ski enthusiasts in the, around us. I'm jealous. I'm jealous. I'm in a much warmer climate than that. <laughs> My heart goes out to you. So you've got a really cool story, and I, I enjoyed uh, talking to you a couple of years ago when you were in the throes of, of this thing that was uh, developing and unfolding. So can you tell us a little bit of what's the story behind how Imperative, your company, came to be and what it's all about? So I you know, was, I was at Google a few years ago and started a job that was not extremely fulfilling to me there. I had loved the company Google. Um, I had followed it for years and years and wanted to work there. But my first job there was basically operating Gmail for businesses. So I was helping organizations deploy Gmail, switch away from Microsoft, and I was in this very operator-intensive role, right? And I found myself pretty stuck about six months into my job at Google and realized, you know, I was not making a huge impact. I didn't feel like I had a deep sense of community, and I wasn't really growing and learning. And I sort of woke up one day and realized, wow, you know, the ball is totally in my court to make this work more fulfilling. And I sort of shifted perspective, began to volunteer at YouTube, started to work on YouTube's educational endeavors, trying to help democratize YouTube's content for educational purposes. Before I knew it, I was in a very impactful role. I was connected 
some awesome people. I was growing and learning. And I said, wow, I sort of made this awesome switch. I sort of unearthed some potential for myself here. And, you know, over the course of my time at YouTube, EDU, taking more of a leadership role, I ended up having dozens and dozens of conversations with people that were also stuck in their work. They felt unfulfilled. They were in this two-year itch where they, they didn't quite know what to do with their lives. So they go to business school. Do I stay here? Or do they just sort of stand fulfilled? And my message to them was sort of the same. It was, you know, you are in control of your well-being and your fulfillment. And the ball is in your court, just like it was mine. I had this inkling that, you know, perhaps Google is not going to be where I stay in, in, in the short run even. And through a, a great mutual friend was introduced to a guy named Aaron Hurst. Aaron started a, a group called the Packard Foundation. And I know him as the luminary that really was responsible for catalyzing what is today a $15 billion marketplace in pro bono. And Aaron recognized that you have skilled professionals that want to do more in the community than just paint a school bench or plant a tree. And if you could create a marketplace to connect those skilled professionals to local community needs, you could really make a huge impact. And so over the course of 15 years, Aaron built up this massive marketplace and worked with all of these pro bono professionals that called their pro, pro bono work so much more fulfilling than their paycheck jobs. So Imperative actually came out of Aaron and I deeply exploring how we could address this need that we both saw from completely different vantage points, that the next generation is coming to work looking for so much more than a paycheck. And pro bono can actually be just as fulfilling for people inside work as it could outside of work. How can we enable all work to feel like pro bono work? Imperative, we started it to be the company that really leads the research and development on purpose in the workplace. And it's a talent analytics company it helps individuals uncover what gives them purpose while helping organizations uncover new, unique, incredible ways to empower their people. Lovely. And so you've worked with some pretty high-end clients in your, already in your, your youth as a company. Yeah, we've had a chance to work with a, a really wide variety of companies and organizations from you know the YWCA of Chicago all the way to the retail furniture company West Elm, all the way to technology companies like LinkedIn. And what's interesting is each one of those organizations has a similar challenge in that they want to, A, attract and retain the best people, but B, unearth the potential of their people. So it's been great to see how cross-disciplinary that need really is. I hear you. So now let's really dig in here. And when you talk about purpose, how would you define purpose? And I'd like to maybe get a bit of a distinction going here because in your workforce purpose index, you, you draw a lot of cool claims and correlations and, and data slices dice bits. And it reminded me a little bit about the, the Gallup engagement type work. So tell me, how would you define purpose and, and how is purpose different than engagement for the purposes of your work? Great question, Pete. First and foremost, when we started Imperative, we learned that each person had a really unique, distinctive definition of purpose. This was largely influenced by Hollywood. So the very first thing was there were three kind of core myths about purpose that we needed to debunk just so that we were all on the same page. The first is that purpose is not a luxury. It's possible for anyone in any job. And the best example of this is that Viktor Frankl actually wrote that purpose is what got him through the Holocaust. You know, the second is that purpose isn't a clause. And oftentimes we hear people say, the only way I can experience purpose is if I go volunteer, if I build a well in Africa. Yeah. But instead, we learned that purpose is possible in any context, and you can have purpose from some of the least tuning experiences. And finally, especially what we hear from grad school students, that purpose is not a revelation. You don't just go to school and discover your purpose. It's not getting struck by lightning. It's a continuous discovery process. And oftentimes, grad school students, when we, when we share that, you see you know, frowns across the group, and, and you realize, wow, a lot of people did come to grad school to find their purpose. I was not going to say that. Then what are we doing here? They flip the tables and quit. <laughs> <laughs> what are we doing here? 
Yeah, I know. And that's, of course, a lot of what, you know, you know, the two or three years into your first job, you go to grad school, it's like, well, I have to find my purpose. And, and that's sort of a dangerous idea because, boy, what, what happens if you don't find your purpose after spending all that kind of money? So instead, what we learned is that purpose comes from three core things. The first is when you have a sense of impact in your work every day, you have a sense of purpose. The second is when you form deep, meaningful relationships, you have a sense of purpose. And finally, when you grow and you learn personally, you have a sense of purpose. So those three together we call RIG, Relationships, Impact, and Growth, ah. are how you measure purpose. And, and that's, a, that's kind of a barometer for fulfillment. So when we talk about the Gallup study, engagement, it's really important to know, you know, is someone coming to work and are they actually here? Are they actually present? Are they actually engaged and activated? And are they not? So that's an important question. But there's this other question of, to what extent are you fulfilled? To what extent do you experience meaning? And that's a different question that we believe links to engagement. If you have meaning, you're more likely to be engaged. But definitely, the thing should be between the two. Okay, that makes sense. And, and I'm clear. And I like that rig. Easy to remember. I respect a good acronym. So in your Workforce Purpose Index there, it looks like you, you teamed up with the folks at NYU and you did some meaty stuff there. I, I, I guess, as I read through it, 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 you tell me if this is all right, you had over 6,000 folks work through this questionnaire, which is about 36 questions, and those questions are, are geared toward assessing the extent to which po folks do have the, the rig going for them, the, the relationships, the impact, the growth, as well as what their experience of work is like. Tell us a little bit about what was that study and what are some of the insights from it? The Workforce Purpose Index was aimed at being really the first study of purpose in the workforce. And one of the key pieces of that was this concept of work orientation. And what that really comes down to is the fact that we form a story about work and the role that it plays in our life at a young age, relatively early in our adolescence, influenced by the way that our role models look at work. And, you know, at the end of the day, I think we could all agree that everyone in the world, everyone on the planet is seeking meaning. Everyone is in search of meaning. There's a major question, however, as to what role does work play in helping someone achieve meaning. And what we learned in this work and in early research that we leveraged was that we have a story about work and whether it, it, it can be a source of meaning, whether we believe it can be a source of meaning or not. And so you can look at it and basically say there are, there are two workforces. One that sees work purely as a means to an end, and fulfillment is only possible at the top or outside of work. And one that actually sees the act of working itself as a source of enrichment and meaning. That second group is what we call the purpose-oriented workforce. And these are individuals that see work as a means of serving other people and achieving fulfillment. If they won the lottery, for example, they wouldn't stop working altogether. They are fulfilled by the act of working. And so one of the things we measured in the index was how many purpose-oriented people are in the workforce. We learned that 28% of the United States workforce is purpose-oriented. And essentially, that those individuals outperform their colleagues that are more money and status oriented by every single measure. So, you know, it was a really kind of great indicator for us that purpose actually has a business case. And I buy that. I'd say that just seems sensible. People are finding purpose in the course of doing their job, and they are finding relationships and impact and growth personally for them. They're going to be fired up and... And, and do all kinds of good things. So when you talk about all the, the metrics or outperformance, you, you know, tell me about them. Are we talking about sales or promotions or low attrition? Uh, what are some of those? So one of them was your old company and their metric around employee net promoter score. So Bain & Company, is, I'm sure you know, Pete, has the employee net promoter score that they coined. And so one of the things we were assessing is, 
to what extent does a, does an individual employee actually advocate for their company? And we learned that purpose-oriented workers were significantly more likely to promote their organization, while money and status-oriented employees were actually more likely to be detractors on Bain's scale. So that was one key piece. We learned that on traditional company performance scales at places like LinkedIn and West Elm, purpose-oriented workers had significantly higher performance by the company's own standards. Oh, okay. So at LinkedIn, to give you a sense, they were 30% higher on LinkedIn's performance scale. 41% of LinkedIn's employees were purpose-oriented, and they were almost a third more likely to be higher performers. Purpose-oriented workers were, were uh, 20% more likely to stay in their job longer than 10 years uh, compared to their colleagues. They had higher levels of meaning across RIG, all three of those areas impact relationships and growth, and they were more likely to achieve leadership competencies. And so we saw that basically across every kind of key metric you could look at, these these folks were higher potential. So tell me, how does one get tagged in your system? And not to get too deep into the weeds of your data, but I can't resist. You mentioned I'm a, I'm a Bain alum. I got a... <laughs> <laughs> Results, not reports. <laughs> so how does one get tagged? It all has to do with how much money you have. No, I'm kidding. Uh, it has to do completely with, we used a series of psychometrics and you know, they assessed a series of core traits that we attributed to the purpose-oriented worker. To give you a sense, these were things such as being relationship-driven, having a sense of optimism for the world, seeing the world as interconnected, actually choosing to proactively and voluntarily continue to work if given sort of unlimited extrinsic means. So a lot of different traits and behaviors that we had correlated to this archetype. And so we, we didn't ask people outright, do you love purpose? That would have been sort of silly and people could have kind of gained that. We instead looked at these traits. And with pretty certain accuracy, saw you know a clear delineation there. And, and so that's kind of what those thirty-six questions were about—kind of kind of agree, strongly agree, strongly disagree kinds of things to to assess those elements and see if they cross the, the threshold to be called purpose-driven. That's right. Yeah. So it was on a Likert scale, and based on that Likert scale, we were able to attribute people to certain categories. And that was both alongside their kind of core performance metrics that were self-evaluated, such as, do I expect to stay in the job longer than two years? Do I actively promote my company on uh, you know, on its behalf? Am I currently in a leadership role? Have I been promoted to leadership roles alongside our metrics of uh, rig and of uh, work orientation? Okay. And alongside the employee performance data from the performance managed systems. Right. So LinkedIn and, and a number of other companies actually shared their performance data with us and we correlated it to those archetypes. So that was what gave us the ability to also get into, you know, whether this really is tied to performance. Okay. So I'm convinced and satisfied. <laughs> you, you, you probably get grilled harder. It passes the Pete Mikaitis test. That's a big step for him. <laughs> oh, no. I'm sure, I'm sure your clients grill you harder. Or like, is this statistically significant? You know, and all those kinds of things. So now that I understand uh, kind of how this works, okay, purpose is linked to all kinds of great stuff, which makes intuitive sense, and it makes kind of scientific data put together sense to me. So imagine, here I am, I'm working in a job. Get me some more of that purpose. What we learned is that work orientation is very difficult to change. And so, you know, you take a money versus status versus purpose-oriented worker, and convincing a money-oriented worker that sees work as purely a, a means to an end that work is actually a source of fulfillment would be like convincing them that the color that they had defined as purple is actually really red, right? Now, it, it can change with someone having a significant life event. Um, we don't recommend that companies facilitate that. So instead, <laughs> that would be a dangerous business and not one that we want to be in. So, and, and I think, you know, you can attest this, Pete. I mean, you lead, you know, gazillions of trainings and keynotes and 
you know, to really change a person is difficult. You can help a person realize greater potential. And I think you do that all the time. Oh yeah. And you can help someone see more about themselves, which is amazing. And those types of transformations I think are beautiful. To actually change the way a person sees the world is tough. So what we've done to sort of further that though, and to, to not throw the baby out with the bathwater, if you will, is actually designed uh, a series of experiences that help an individual uncover what uniquely motivates them in their work. So let's all focus on work together. And of course, the purpose of this podcast, beautifully, and how can we even help as money as status-oriented workers better optimize in their existing work and hopefully build a a culture that's more purpose-oriented by attracting and retaining more purpose-oriented workers, but helping everyone realize greater potential in their existing work context. So one of those things for us is is a diagnostic that tells people they're purpose drivers, and everyone has purpose drivers just as much as everyone has strengths and levels of aptitude. So we've, we've built this instrument, which is very much meant to be for everyone, not just for purpose-oriented workers. And the idea is to help bring vocabulary for purpose into the day-to-day work context. Again, the purpose-oriented workers flock to that immediately because they've been seeking it out and, and work to them is a means of achieving purpose. But for everyone else, it still is a, a means of better optimizing, better aligning to the work that you do every day, uh, better have, you know, developing a better sense of self. So the, the goal, hopefully, is to continue democratizing this type of way of looking at work, you know, insights for people to grow and connect. Now, can anyone get their hands on this purpose driver's assessment, or do they have to be part of a company that's hired you? How does that work? No, anyone can get their hands on it. It's actually at imperative.com, and you click on four individuals, and you will be able to sign up. You answer 30 questions. You get three drivers, and these drivers explain who you work to impact, why you work, and how you approach problem solving. You're put into one of 24 different archetypes, and if you really want to go crazy, go all out, you can, you can get the 20-page report, which is like the purpose drivers on steroids, and a whole series of insights around how to communicate, how to team up, how to focus your growth and development. It's really kind of interesting leveraging it on teams and uh, with your manager. Well, that is robust. Wow, cool. Looks like you're putting the investor's money to good use over there. That's cool. Yeah, try trying to stay busy. <laughs> we can't sit on our hands over here. It wouldn't be purposeful. <laughs> well played. So could you give us an example of what might be uh, an example of a, a purpose driver and what might be an example of an architect, just so I can kind of get my arms around what that means? There are three dimensions that we we learn people through which people experience meaning in their work every day. So I, I mentioned level level fulfillment, which is great, right? I'm, I have deep relations, I'm growing, I'm learning, I, I have a sense of impact. However, how I experience purpose, basically the, the kind of hardwired way that I see work and experience purpose stays fairly constant as well, just like work orientation. So the first is the scale at which you see your impact made. And what we learned at this stage is people view their impact all the way from a very hands-on individual way, all the way up to a societal scale, broad societal scale. And so it exists on a spectrum of, do I work every day to impact individual lives that I can point to on one end, or do I work every day to impact broader social change at a societal scale? So one of the things we assess is that spectrum with teams and organizations in the middle of those two. So one of your drivers is either individual, organization, or society. The second is how you see the world work. And essentially, this links toward one of two, which we call karma versus harmony. And what we've learned is that karma-oriented people see the world as being basically solving for itself. You know, you don't need to intervene. The world will adjust for itself. Economies will solve for themselves. Your goal is to lift the barrier so that the highest potential things can realize their greatest potential. 
So it's a very achievement-driven, advancement-driven, kind of potential-driven uh, approach to seeing seeing the world work, and it influences the way that people influence uh, the way that people act interpersonally in an office, all the way to the way that they see the political spectrum in, in the world. The second of those drivers is is harmony, and these are people that are extremely driven to create fairness and equality, to make sure everyone's voices are heard, to ensure that everyone has a seat at the table. And so we learned that people see the world work in a harmony way when they actually see that the, that the system is, is actually fundamentally unfair and you need to intervene. And so karma versus harmony is the why, and that's sort of why you're driven to work. The, the last piece is how you approach problem solving. And what we learn is that people have a natural style to how they problem solve that informs how they experience purpose. There are four drivers. The first is human-centered, which means you problem solve by empathizing with an individual and designing solution that uniquely meets their needs. Second is community-oriented, which is problem solving by taking a very relationship-driven approach and connecting to others. The third is structure-driven, which means designing a system or policy, you know, leveraging an existing best practice and implementing it to solve the need. Finally, knowledge-oriented, which I think might be you, Pete, around these great questions, which is unearthing new insights and new knowledge and really gaining evidence to solve a problem. So those three areas, who you impact, why you work, and how you problem solve, if you select one of each of those drivers, there are 24 possible combinations. We've named each of those combinations. And what's fascinating is these drivers have an implication on what energizes you, how you tell your story of work every day, the blind spots you have in the way that you build relationships, your natural leadership style, the way that you best interface with the team. So we've built a whole series of experiences around kind of the multiple ways that you can apply these. Very first, though, is just understanding more about yourself. Oh, my gosh, that is wild. It's funny because I'm often, you know, guilty. I do love the knowledge, and I do have a bias, I think, towards, you know, action and tactics and and the hows and the practical nuggets. And so I was like, so what can we do to get more purpose? And you said, well, actually, that depends on which of the 24 archetypes that you are. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and and it's it's not that heady. I mean, a lot of our... The goal with it was to make it very accessible, but it is scientific to your point. So if you are one of those guys that wants to do a super, super deep dive into the science, this does give you the chance to do that. However, there's an ability to keep it pretty high level and say, oh, wow, I'm just very hands-on and I connect to people to solve problems. Good to know. That's fun. And, and so it's not just about what I'm hearing then. It's, it's not a one-size-fits-all. Oh, you want more purpose? Well, then you need to ask for feedback from your supervisor and then you'll have it. It's like, well that may apply way more to, to one archetype than another. That's exactly right. And I think part of the mistake of our workforce to date and, and leadership to date when we have a command and control model is we treat employees like they all are the same, just like in the industrial economy and still today, unfortunately, in many classrooms, we treat students like they all learn the same way. So there's a huge opportunity to uncover that, wow, each employee in our workforce has a unique blueprint in terms of how they experience purpose. And if we can meet them where they are, it's an extraordinary opportunity for leaders to actually help each individual make the most out of their work. And that doesn't have to all be in one identical fashion. That's great. And so that's definitely a a key to do an action item to to dig into that and see how things shake out on the assessment. And at the risk of totally contradicting what we just said and oversimplifying, are there any semi-universal best practices that are pretty good for most people to bear in mind to get more purpose going? Yeah, I would start by asking yourself those three questions of how deep and meaningful are my relationships? Do I feel like I'm part of a community in my work every day? Am I making an impact and a difference in my work every day? And am I growing and learning personally? And if any of those three are missing, 
there's a huge opportunity to sort of assess your current environment, say, well, look, what do I have to do? That that's sort of the, the set of constraints. Um, what do I want to do? What do I love to do? And if I'm low in one of those three in my rig, my own rig rating, what do I need to change? And I think so often, like I sort of found myself at Google, we feel stuck and we, we sort of get frustrated and our immediate reaction, it's, it's sort of like our involuntary reaction is to jump ship, find greener grass, right, somewhere else. And what we've begun to realize, and I think what, I, what my kind of key epiphany was at Google was the grass isn't greener on the other side, it's greenest where you water it. Sometimes that is on the other side, but how do we make our grass greener, right? And, and I think one of the ideas that we coined was called job tailoring. It's essentially almost gamifying your job to some extent by assessing your constraints, assessing your drivers, measuring your current levels of rig, right? And looking at ways you can enhance aspects of your work. And some of the most inspiring stories of job tailoring came from hospital janitors of all, of all people that had very little autonomy and not a lot of accolades or pay, yet managed to make small enhancements to the way that they work to, lo and behold, actually bring better care to patients in the hospital as hospital janitors. So there are really inspiring stories like that. You hear that and say, wow, as a desk-based employee with a college degree, for example, I've got so much more autonomy than that. I can do so much more, and, and yet I didn't give myself credit. So that's really, you know, I think getting that sense of agency, starting with a, a small dose of self-awareness, is the ticket to making things better at work. Oh, that is a great setup. The grass is greenest where you water it. Is that an Arthur Woods original? No, definitely not. I'm sure if you Google that, you're going to see a bunch of memes from like 50 years ago that said that. It's one that I admiringly copied. (laughs) Someone said it, and and I'm sure it's been said by many times that it's by like anonymous, I'm sure, right? Would you say memes? I'm just imagining that the most interesting man in the world or Captain Picard will somehow uh, be affiliated with the text. (laughs) That's right. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. This is fantastic stuff. So the, the janitor story, you kind of outlined it well. Could you could you flush that out a little bit? So like, what sorts of actions do they begin taking? The, the early research that inspired us was qualitative research. It really was on work orientation, which we, of course, repurposed and leveraged in our, in our in- index. And this was a set of interviews of about 340 people in hospitals. And it was doctors, nurses, all the way down to hospital janitors. And the assumption had been, you know, our doctors and sort of our most educated people senior members of the hospital will be the most purpose-driven and they're here for you know impact and everything else. And everyone else that's paid a lot less is really just here because they have to be. To the contrary, what they discovered was there were a number of nurses and doctors that were there mainly for money and for status. And there were also a visible number of hospital janitors that were primarily at work for purpose. And this was sort of astounding because you, know, you had these individuals in fairly compromising environments. And a lot of studies that went to show hospital janitors are oftentimes extremely mistreated in hospitals. Yet this purpose-oriented group emerged and they were actually largely fulfilled in their work, so their rig was quite high. And what the researchers went, went on to discover was these individuals were tailoring aspects of their work, largely the story they told themselves and other people about their work, that they actually were um, serve, serving as uh, you know, a means of helping patients get better and not just sweeping floors. So they were serving as translators between patients and doctors that didn't speak the same language. They were oftentimes bringing humor to the patient experience. They were changing around paintings in long-term care facilities where patients didn't have to uh, stare at the same painting. So really going above and beyond. And, you know, in many of those cases, when these researchers went back to interview clients, patients in the hospital, they learned that those janitors were a major reason that they were getting better. So it was pretty extraordinary to see, you know, 
not only what this could do to transform the experience of an individual, but how it could actually meet the mission of the hospital as these janitors for job tailoring. Oh, that is beautiful stuff. Oh, I could talk to you about this for hours, but... <laughs> I love it. I love it. Me too. Me too. That might not be ideal for anyone else listening. So I, I'll just ask you <laughs> quickly, is there anything that you'd like to, to drop to contribute before we kind of shift gears into the rapid fire uh, fast faves segment? I think you've nicely covered most of it. I really do think, though, that we're in the middle of what, what I think is a massive paradigm shift in work. If you look at where we're going as a workforce and as a society, you know, the World Economic Forum estimates that basically the entire middle section of our workforce will be displaced by technology and pushed in basically two directions. The first will be the creative class, and you'll have a kind of maybe emerging, exciting renaissance of new creative jobs. Maybe the work week has decreased uh, significantly, and you'll, you'll start to see these awesome new either high-tech jobs or creative jobs emerge. And I think many people on this call will be blessed to be part of that workforce, and, and that, that won't be any surprise. But you then think about the other end, and, and what's, what's going to happen is you're going to see a, a significant number of people that are underemployed in the workforce, where it actually was not optimal to replace individuals by technology. It was still cheaper to pay people to perform a series of rote mundane tasks. And it will be sort of like the 21st or 22nd version of sweatshops. So I don't mean to paint a dystopian view of the workforce, but that's really where we're going as we continue to build technology that does replace jobs and replaces sort of the service economy. You know, what I ask myself in that scenario is, what does that mean for purpose? You know, what, where, where does purpose fit? And I think of a highly underemployed workforce, and I think, wow, we, we have a long way to go to ensure that those individuals in their work are empowered and hopefully are not marginalized. So I, I think the paradigm shift is really, in many ways, a human revolution, which is how do we help people realize their potential at work? How do we create the systems and policies and tools that enable leaders to not just you know, manage, but empower? How do we give people, uh, you know, the next generation, if they're in school, thinking about work, a new story about work, that work is not just a means to an end, but it is indeed a source of enrichment. And so this paradigm shift is occurring across every single level, from the way that we bring our children up, to the way that we promote people, the way that we classify jobs, the way that we fire new leaders. And I think, you know, it starts, I think, with each of us asking the question of ourselves, which is, why do I work and where am I at my best? But it really is for the sake of hopefully a larger societal shift. Wow, that is important stuff. So, well, I'm so glad uh, we've got you taking on some of this important work. Now let's uh, wrap it up and talk about some of your, your favorite things rather quickly. Uh, one, can you tell us uh, what's a favorite quote, something that inspires you again and again? You know, one that I always come back to uh, was Louis Armstrong, and he said, what we play is life. And I heard that at a young age, and he's referring to music, of course, but it just had, I thought, like, wow, there, it's so deep, and there are probably 10 different meanings to that. So what we play is life. I love it. How about a favorite study, a piece of research or experiment that you find yourself thinking about or referencing frequently? Well, besides the Workforce Purpose Index, just kidding, just kidding. There was a really interesting study on zookeepers that came out of the University of Utah, and it was a study on purpose on zookeepers. And what, what they learned is that these zookeepers were so mission-driven and so worried about the well-being of animals um, that no one else would take care of them that they actually hid the fact that they had purpose at work from their managers because they thought that either they would be marginalized or underpaid or someone else might mistreat the animals. And so there was this whole kind of dark side of purpose, which is an interesting one to explore, but it was the, the, the zookeeper study. I never would have guessed. How about a favorite book? So I just finished Sapiens. And it was amazing. A Short History of the World, by, uh, and I, I don't even, I'm not even remembering the author, but 
Amazing. And a uh, favorite website or online resource? Yeah, there's a great one called The Noun Project. And you can search for any noun and it gives you a visual, trying to find a new way to classify things visually online. And how about a favorite habit, a personal practice that's been very effective for you? I'm part of a Buddhist practice and I chant every morning and every night. I chant the Nam Myoho Renge Kyo. And it's, a, it's just a great way to sort of bookend the day. What does that translate to? I'm going to butcher this, but more or less, uh, it, it, you know, without directly translating for Japanese, it means I'm dedicating myself to the uh, practice of eternal peace and, and pushing forward through challenges to achieve eternal peace. Well, that sounds like a very worthwhile thing to commit yourself to. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> about about the top. <laughs> so, and, and, and you don't have to put yourself on the spot, but what does that chant sound like? Are there kind of musical tones there? Yeah, no, no, no. So you, you, you literally repeat nam-myoho-renge-kyo, nam-myoho-renge-kyo, nam-myoho-renge-kyo. And what's interesting is when you hear people do it in unison, it becomes almost like a trance-like chant. And, and it goes so fast sometimes, you, you don't even recognize what it is. But it really is a pretty moving experience, especially to do so in the community. How about uh, favorite uh, tool? Any gadget, software, hardware, things you use often? Ooh, favorite tool? That's a great question. You know what? This is so funny, but my mom just gave me this. I, I don't even know how to describe it. It's a, it's, a, it's a little man, like a little figurine, imagine, right? And his pants, his shorts are a, a tea bag. They hold tea. And you, you, you have his arms hang over a coffee cup and... It looks like he's in a, I have, to, I have to send you a picture of it. It's just amazing. It's like, it was one of those gifts that you get and, you, and you're like, wow, this is like one of the most special things I've received. It's so cool. And it's probably like worth $5, right? But it's just, it just brings you joy when you see this thing. It's like this guy hanging out over a cup and his pants are, his, they hold tea. <laughs> Very low-fi. <laughs> Well, that'll serve you well. <laughs> it'll it'll serve me very well. And how about a favorite uh, time-saving trick? So I am starting to schedule. Google actually taught me to schedule uh, hour-long meetings to be 50 minutes in your head and half an hour-long meetings to be 25 minutes. So you basically try to end five minutes or 10 minutes before, respectively. And it just gets you in this habit of not running over. I hate that experience of like always being three minutes late to your next meeting. Oh, so the idea is when you actually make the meeting request, it is for 50 minutes? That is that is the way Google set it up. So we would we would send out 50-minute invites for an hour-long meeting or 25-minute invites. I have not sent out invites like that. What I do is I, I look to end the meeting five minutes before or 10 minutes before. It doesn't always work, but you get in that sort of mental habit of, wow, we're not ending on the dot. We're going to end early. And how about a favorite uh, truth bomb or nugget that when you share as you're doing your consulting or, or speaking... You see heads start nodding, uh, people retweet it, they take their notes on it. Uh, what's some of that nugget or quotable quote? Yeah, I mean, the, gra- the grass is greener is one that, that I see, you know, I, I see retweeted a lot. You know, one is certainly that everyone has the opportunity to tailor their job, that your job is a, your job is written in pencil, not pen. And if we start to believe, you know, realize that we have the pencil with an eraser, we're very empowered to, you know, make decisions that are right for ourselves. Nothing is ever permanent. And a favorite role model, someone you look up to professionally and why? I have to say Richard Branson has has just been this guy with tons of courage, tons of agency, and he you know, look, again, just like we just, you know, just talked about, never accepts the status quo. So he just, anything he touches, he tries to disrupt. Most recently now, from what I've learned, the cruise industry and really respect his willingness to never settle. And a favorite way to find you, if folks want to learn more about you or Imperative, uh, where would you ideally direct them to, the website or email or Twitter? Absolutely. So my Twitter, uh, at Arthur Woods, and my email, Arthur at Imperative.com. 
finally, a favorite challenge or call to action you would leave folks with who are seeking to be more awesome at their job? Go get your purpose drivers. And if you're interested, get the uh, full report. I think you'll find it as a, as a meaningful first step in self-discovery if you're still in that early stage. And, and maybe a reaffirming step if you're already asking yourself some deep questions and looking for answers or affirmation. Well, Arthur, thanks so much for taking the time. I know you got a busy travel schedule and a lot of things on your plate uh, this week and next, but uh, much appreciated, and, and this was a real treat. Pete, it was a pleasure, and you're a great host. Oh, shucks. Well, thank you, and have a good one. All right, thanks, Pete. Well, I hope that got you fired up for getting some more purpose integrated into your workday the way it did me. And again, to check out some of these resources visually, in particular, that assessment he mentioned, you can find all of that at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep6. And looking forward to next time. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.